I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. Welcome back to the Uncivilized Podcast, where we are reconciling the modern urban existence with our innate human need for the natural world. I'm Jennifer Grayson, and we are at episode 20 today. I, I really can't believe it. I've been absorbing all that I've learned from all of our remarkable guests so far. Hopefully you have been as well. And I've been figuring out where we go from here, not just on this show and in my own life, but really in the world. So it is fitting that at this juncture right now, our guest today is Arthur Haynes, the author of the absolutely fascinating book, A New Path. So if you are a fan of the book Sapiens that came out a few years ago by Yuval Noah Harari or any of Jared Diamond's books like Collapse or The World Until Yesterday, I know I am. Those books that really do a deep dive into this premise that our modern life way has radically diverged from the evolutionary norm for our species, and that industrial society, agricultural society has had catastrophic consequences for not only our health, but the health of the planet, then Arthur's book, A New Path, should be a must-read book for you because what it really does is it takes that essential premise of those other books and that other authors have explored and explores it not only intellectually, but actually lays out concretely, step-by-step, where we can go from here. He actually gives us answers because you know we can't go back to being hunter-gatherer tribes, um, not unless society as we know it collapses completely. So Arthur explores how we can take what we know, what we now know about the very best aspects of ancestral lifeways and bring them into the 21st century so that we can live with more resilience to chronic disease. We can live in a way that doesn't degrade the environment so that we can once again find community and a shared sense of purpose. And so not only has Arthur written this book, A New Path, but he is also putting everything he's written about into practice in a neo-ancestral community he and his family have created in Maine called Wilder Waters, which you will also hear about on today's episode. And as we are wrapping up this first season, I just want to thank you all so much for your listenership so so far, for all of your iTunes ratings and reviews. It really means the world to me. Enjoy this episode with Arthur Haynes, and I will be back on April 9th with a new episode. I'm here today with Arthur Haynes, a forager, ancestral skills mentor, author, and public speaker who runs the Delta Institute of Natural History in Canton, Maine. He is the author of the new book, A New Path, to transcend the great forgetting through incorporating ancestral practices into contemporary living. Arthur, welcome to the show. Hey, Jennifer, thanks for having me on your program. So excited to talk to you today, and congratulations on such a brilliant book. Um, you know, and describing a new path almost doesn't feel, describing it as a book almost doesn't feel like it does it justice because what you've laid out here is so profound and so comprehensive that the feeling I get when reading it is almost like I'm trying to absorb degrees in graduate level degrees in anthropology, evolutionary biology, you know, ethnobotany. And so there's just such an astounding wealth of knowledge. And my first thought when I'm reading all of this is, who are your teachers? Like, was there someone you actually could go to to even review this manuscript? Uh, not really. I, Jennifer, you know, we live in a highly specialized society where even some of the greats within the rewilding community 
are, are generally people who have very specific talents. You know, take Katie Bowman or Erwan Lacour, they're movement folks. And that doesn't mean that they're not learning about other things as well, but that's their primary area, especially, especially. or, you know, take Sam Thayer in the Wisconsin area. Now you have someone who is um, highly involved in foraging. And we could keep going through these people, but really it's very hard to find um, someone who can tie the whole thing together. You know, uh, Daniel Vitalis is one of the few people that has gotten his feet wet in a variety of topics. So he was certainly helpful, uh, all of the discussions and just bouncing ideas and theories back and forth. But most people are very immersed within something, uh, you know, incredibly specific within the rewilding theme. So in terms of your research for the book, how many years was this in the making? And I mean, really, the book is, you know, has taken me a lifetime to get to because it it is more than just the last few years of writing and research, but I would say it really came together a lot more in the last few years, um, especially with just a tremendous amount of reading on ethnobotany and anthropology, archaeology, and so on, bringing together all of these scientific studies and, and kind of using them as a lens to view modern studies. Uh, you know, a great example is when we have a modern study that comes out that says, you know, red meat causes cancer. And yet when we look at hunter gatherers who were still practicing their original, their, you know, in their diet of that place, and we don't see cancer observed in these people, there's a contradiction there. And how do we navigate that contradiction? And, and these, um, this wealth of writing that has occurred on hunter-gatherers and indigenous people who, again, were living their intact lifeways, not those who had been marginalized, pushed into degraded habitats or acculturated and, you know, you know to a high degree. These studies are really valuable for us because they teach us what our biological norms are. Right. And it's so interesting because you seem to just have this innate awareness that how we live our lives now is so such a radical departure from who we are as human beings, how we've lived for, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. And so I'm just curious, when did you, was there a point that you can think to that you started to have this awareness about being interested in what came before us? And, you know, what was your childhood like? I'd love to just hear the story. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it certainly, I've been very fortunate, if you look at my childhood, to have always lived in rural areas uh, where I had access to nature, access to clean water, rivers to swim in, places to fish, hunting, tracking, mountaineering, and all of those kinds of things. Uh, growing up in western Maine, where, I mean, certainly there are villages and there are small cities, but by and large, we're a forested region of the state. Um, and, and I've always wondered about things like, how did they do this? I remember thinking early on when I had wisdom teeth removed by the dentist and thinking, my God, how did, how did Aboriginal people, how did the indigenous extract those teeth without these tools, without this pain medicine? And then, of course, I came to realize they didn't have to. Their mouths were wide enough to fit all of their teeth. But I remember thinking that as a child, what that, how horrible that must have been for Native Americans and other hunter-gatherers around the world. And so I think it's, it's always been there. But once you really start critiquing our living and looking at 
what are our evolutionary patterns versus how are we living now? Once you really start diving into that question, you learn that virtually everything we do stands in contradiction to what our bodies need for health. And not just our bodies. When I say that, I, I mean our emotion, our, our spirits, if you will, everything. And it's a hard question for many to face because so much of our worldview begins to unravel when we look at that really carefully. Right. And so did you come from a family that were that was asking these questions? Like, what did your parents do? Do you come from an academic academic background? Uh, no, um, I, you know, I come from a very rural town. Uh, the town was called Avon, a small town along the Sandy River. It is a place of, you know, certainly close family ties and very hardworking people. Um, but we're not talking about a place where academia is highlighted. Uh, we're not talking about a place where science is at the foremost of discussions um, you know, it's it's small town and that has its wonderful advantages and also its disadvantages. But no, I, I'm very different from the rest of my family and I can't answer why that's the case. Um, you know, I ate the same food. I had the same discussions at the table. Um, I think that just various people that I met and my experiences in the wilderness and lots of time thinking about things alone. I spent a lot of time alone in the forests and along the rivers in Western Maine that perhaps there may have been some catalyst there um, that, that certainly helped with really, um, when I say criticizing, I don't mean it in a demeaning way, but really critically thinking about how we're living and what happens to the natural world as a result of it. What was the first divergence, I should say, from this traditional, more, maybe more traditional upbringing that you had, or traditional, you know, in our modern world sense, certainly not traditional when we're talking about aboriginal lifestyles. Yeah, yeah, no, I t completely understand your question, Jennifer. Um, I, I decided that I wanted to, you know, pursue a, a college degree, and I started out in wildlife management. And I enjoyed that work. But there wasn't anything there that really um, spoke to me in a really deeply passionate way. And and then one day, as a complete coincidence, I met a local botanist, a plant biologist who specialized in finding rare species through his understanding of their natural communities that they're growing and even microsite differences. This one requires this kind of soil at this elevation with these associated species around it. And he could go back and, and find things that hadn't been seen for a century or more. And I really got into this. Um, and so that's where botany began for me was, you know, exposure to this person, um, Les Eastman, who was this mentor of mine for a while. And and that got me really going down a path of science and natural history, ecology, and eventually uh, really deep into taxonomy where we're looking at very small and sometimes subtle differences that can mean different lineages of plants. And that kind of an information that arranging information and sorting information just came in really handy, uh, oddly enough, with this whole study of human rewilding, where we came from and where we're going. Right. And that's really what I want to focus on today. And what I'm so interested in is that, and I want to make sure that our listeners who might not be 
familiar with your work really get the core of this, which is this idea that, I mean, really, it's, it's shocking when you first hear it, that modern humans are a domesticated version of our species. When did you come to this idea? Yeah, this was an idea that was not solely my idea. It's something that, you know, Daniel Vitalis and I uh, discussed at length in our in our various conversations around rewilding and the differences um, between wild humans and domesticated humans. And once we came to the idea that we have many of the things that are in common with domesticated animals, for example, we have an altered temperament. We are very tame uh, compared with, you know, say, wild humans or wild animals that would fight for their sovereignty and really fight back physically if necessary against injustices that occur to us. We have an altered social hierarchy. We live in a very stratified society versus an egalitarian one, which is our norm. We have a very different diet than what humans eat in the wild. And of course, we have an ability, in a sense, to breed in captivity. Um, one could go so far as to say that most people consider an institutional birth is the only way to have a birth these days. And that, you know, home births and other places where your sovereignty is preserved are considered to be highly dangerous these days. These are all traits in common with domesticated animals. And once that that idea occurred that we're in a sense not exactly the same subspecies of human that has walked on this planet for a very long time that's when the the rabbit hole sort of completely opens up and you start questioning absolutely everything that we do well and i can imagine that your work as a taxonomist this must have resonated with you in a way that didn't resonate that doesn't resonate with the rest of us. So could you talk a little bit about that? Maybe how this idea of us being a subspecies relates to, you know, your broader work and what you see in your work in taxonomy? Well, yeah, in in taxonomy is, of course, a a classification of living organisms and it uses nested hierarchies of traits. You know, for example, we might define um, all oak trees is having a set of characteristics. One of those would be the possession of this characteristic fruit, the acorn. But then the individual species would have differences amongst those acorns so that we could identify them, just as one sort of level of this taxonomy. And that was really easy to turn around and to apply toward humans. And we can see that not only do we have a very different ecology compared with wild humans, in other words, hunter-gatherers, but we have uh, physical and anatomical traits as well. I mean, a, a, a person who studies the bones of you know, organisms that they find embedded in sediments or preserved in some fashion, it takes them very little time to determine, are these the bones of a hunter-gatherer or are these the bones of an agriculturalist or an industrialist? There are differences that can be detected in, in our skeletons, in our jaw structure. In some cases, even we're seeing frequency of pelvic opening types between domesticated humans and wild humans. Uh, we're different. And that's something that's really hard for people because we want to assume 
that we are living in the greatest moment that humanity has ever experienced. And while we have achieved some amazing things and we've garnered this understanding of our physical universe, we do have things that we've left behind that were done better. Our sense of community, our sense of shared purpose, our resilience to chronic disease, our ability to live in a way that doesn't degrade the environment and impact later generations. I mean, there are things that are not the same as they used to be. And that's really what a new path is about, is trying to bring awareness to these things and saying, how can we emulate hunter-gatherers again? How can we emulate our wild progenitors? How has this idea been received in the scientific community. I mean, is this a widely circulated idea that that modern humans are dom a domesticated version of of the human species? It's it's only starting to you know it's only starting to get uh, really widespread and gain some accept acceptance. I mean, there's a number of um, people who are speaking and using this sometimes as more of a figurative analogy. Others are like myself. Uh, are being much more literal when we say, no, domestication isn't just some figurative difference between us and hunter-gatherers. It's a real difference that we can quantify, we can observe, we can measure. Um, but, you know, if you were to look in books, uh, a recent one written is titled Against the Grain by Yale University Press, you will see the idea of human domestication cropping up a little bit in the beginning of this book. So it's getting out there. I think it's going to be a long while before the global community at large is willing to accept. You know, if, if we were to look at, say, a, a breed of domesticated dog and to compare that against a wolf, people sort of recognize that there has been some loss in abilities through that process of domestication. And because there is that knowledge attached to this idea, we don't like thinking ourselves today as some kind of shadow or, you know, only partial ability of what we may have had in the past. Or how about I say just the partial happiness and contentedness that we had in the past. Um, and, and so, again, it comes down to we have a big mythology of this ascent of humanity that we need to work through before we can have honest discussions about what society is doing to us, what this social structure is doing to us, and how we might attempt to change that in the future. Yeah. And so you bring up such an important point, which is the mythology. So I really want to delve into this because, you know, one of the things I when I was telling people that I was so excited to to talk with you and your book, A New Path, and explaining this idea that you've put out there of establishing this neo-aboriginal lifestyle, a couple of the responses were like, they were kind of like, aboriginal like you want to be an aborigine like the, and the, it just revealed that there is this like you said there is this deep-seated uh if not biased then fear of <laughs> of ancestral life ways and i think there's this will you talk about this like what our misperception is because you mentioned that there we people were content and happy and i don't think that the public perception is that this was the case Right. There, there are a lot of myths about hunter-gatherer lifeways that were based on just the very filter through which or the very lens through which people observe them. I mean, one of the great examples is to, to use the Australian Aborigine as, as um, a, 
you know, uh, a storytelling point here. When they were observed by British explorers, they were seen to be eating things like, you know, lizards and species of insects. And this was considered to be starvation foods for, you know, those of the United Kingdom. And so they simply described folks um, in that particular part of, wor- of the world as being constantly on the verge of starvation. And it wasn't that that was the foods of those place. These were just terrible foods and these poor people needed to be saved from this terrible fate. And it just couldn't be further from the truth. And we see that where contact occurs around the world, that these were people who needed to be saved. They needed a new form of religion. They needed new foods brought to them. Uh, Their entheogenic plants and fungi removed from them. These were the works of the devil, and so on and so forth. And, And yet we know from all of the friendly contacts that occurred around the world that indigenous people were very content with their lives. There was happiness. Depression was virtually unknown, and that is something that is clearly rampant in today's society. Suicide, virtually unknown. I mean, today we have one in six high school students who contemplate suicide. And even when people are presented with statistics like that, it's, it's oh, well, there's something else going on, or I'm just going to bypass that. We'll fix it with medicine or drugs. And we're never willing to look at the underlying cause here. We're living in a way that stands in contradiction with our biology. We have various needs that are hardwired into us through a long evolution of living in our place, and those needs are simply not being met. Yeah. I mean, what you say in the book, which I think is encapsulates this perfectly, which is we are essentially, from a genetic standpoint, hunter-gatherers who experience a tremendous incongruity in what our bodies require and are adapted to, and what our bodies currently receive and experience. And- you know, this is yes. even more, it, this resonates so much too, because I mean, today, I'm sure you've seen the news, like we're in the aftermath of another school shooting in Florida. You're talking about teenagers contemplating suicide. We live in a world where teenagers are now shooting people in what are supposedly their communities. And um, yeah, I mean, the argument that somehow we are living at the best time in human history is, uh, you know, I kind of think we're deluding ourselves. <laughs> Right. And I mean, we do have people like Steven Pinker who are writing books talking about, you know, we are at the happiest and most peaceful period that we've ever been in. And these are just writers who essentially solidify the illusion that people are, you know, being fed. I mean, we we use very carefully laid out statistics like the proportion of the population who dies in a conflict as opposed to the actual numbers or the numbers that die per unit time or the number of continents involved in any one armed conflict. Like we'll, we'll avoid every statistic to carefully select the one that promotes the worldview that we want. And I don't mean to say that this is some you know, weird Illuminati conspiracy theory. This is what all societies do in order to keep people doing what a society needs people to do. We need everyone to believe that things are fine. And I'm not here to claim that, you know, everything is breaking down and there's no reason to live. That's, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that we're supposed to go back in time and live as hunter-gatherers because this isn't even possible. I'm simply talking about taking those pieces of knowledge that we've garnered through science and study from today 
and combine that with what we know about ancestral lifeways and really just try to build a better future for ourselves and the next generations. Right. And so I think such an important part of talking about what we know. Is, so what do we know about their health? Just to put this in perspective, you know, talk about normalizing <laughs> what's going on in a culture. I literally saw a commercial in the run up to the Olympics that was, um, I think, for United Healthcare, And it said, we've cut co we're covering everything from, uh, you know, from colds to cancer, we've got it covered, like as though cancer is just another normal thing. That's part of our culture. I think it's really important to to talk about the context of what was the health of ancestral peoples versus the health of today? Well, we know that there was um, things that were a massive improvement over what we have now. And there were some things that were really difficult for them. Uh, they had much higher child mortality than we had today. And there were a, a number of reasons for that. Uh, there are certain infections that were very difficult to treat um, without the kind of knowledge that we have today of pathogens. Uh, they lived on landscapes that hadn't been denuded of the predators. So they had large predators that occasionally killed children. They had venomous insects and snakes that would sometimes kill children. These were real risks of their landscape that ultimately made these people more aware of their surroundings and they work these features into their songs and their legends and we just go about it in a different strategy we just remove them from our landscape to the extent allowed by law so that we sort of blunder around now um, we're just able to stare at iPhone screens or pads all the time because we've had those kind of things removed from our settings but one of the things that we do know where there was a big improvement was chronic disease. And we have a pretty large body of information, which many people are not aware of, of physicians and surgeons who lived on what was at the time the frontier, living with relatively intact hunter-gatherer populations, cardiovascular disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, cancer, obesity, uh, these kinds of things were virtually unknown in hunter-gatherers. And we can certainly say things like, well, you know, they didn't have the diagnostic tools of today, so they would not have been able to find all of the forms of the cancer. And I say agreed, but there's a few things that we need to remember. One, that doesn't really explain away everything because these same physicians and same surgeons were finding cancer in those who had come from civilization who were also working on the frontier. They report doing surgeries to remove tumors from the Europeans who were living on the frontier, but not from the hunter-gatherers. Now, in addition, we one of the myths that we have to tackle here that people will say, yes, they, okay, so let say they didn't get cancer. Well, they didn't live long enough. Now, of course, that doesn't explain childhood cancer, which is on the rise. And one of the top num top reasons why children die in this country is from cancer. If cancer was going to be prevalent in hunter-gatherers, their children would have gotten it too, and they didn't. But what we do know is that hunter-gatherers actually did live long lives. And what's happening is we're conflating life expectancy with lifespan. They did have a lower life, expense, uh, life expectancy. And this was in large part due to you know earlier, uh, higher and earlier childhood mortality. But when it comes to lifespan, the mode of death for those that reached adulthood, in other words, the highest frequency amongst a number of groups that were studied was 72. 
So we know hunter-gatherers lived into their late 60s, 70s, 80s, and even early 90s. Their lifespan was not that different than what we experience today. Um, and so if they were going to succumb to chronic disease, it would have happened to them. And yet their lifeway still demonstrates this amazing resilience, something that's taking us down in large numbers and costing us. Uh, the last statistic I saw, $3.8 trillion a year in healthcare costs, 86 cents of that per dollar was on chronic disease. I mean, it's literally going to bankrupt us. Yeah. And what's one of the most amazing things that you talk about in the book is how we spend all this money on medicines in pill form, but a lot of them are extracted from foods that we ate for thousands and thousands of years, that food used to be medicine as well. And now the food we eat is no longer, they no longer has those benefits. So I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, because it's mm -hmm. such, I thought that was just the most fascinating, every part of your book is fascinating, but that was really fascinating to me. Right. We literally have bred the medicine out of food. We don't realize that food, particularly plant foods, uh, in, in our history of eating wild foods, we were eating things with a high complement of beneficial phytochemicals that had an array of actions on our body. They were anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, anti-neoplastic, and so on. And all of these things we were getting in our diet in these constant doses throughout portions or the entire year, depending on what part of the world we lived in and what the foraging season was. But we've changed those foods. We've changed them through breeding and we've changed them through laboratory methods. We remove the seeds. We eliminate bitter principles. Keep in mind that our method of tasting antioxidant is through our bitter taste bud. Um, many of the compounds that do provide antioxidant qualities um, do have a bitter taste. And so when we have fashioned a diet that is largely bereft of bitters, we have fashioned a diet that is weak in its antioxidant potency to be able to quench free radical damage. And, you know, study after study shows that wild plants compared with their similar cultivated um, species, the wild plants show higher phenolic content, higher antioxidant content, and a greater ability to protect our cells from UV damage and essentially to keep us cancer-free. We've changed all that and we remove that from our food and instead we now get that medicine in the, in the form of, you know, really serious pharmaceuticals with some pretty crazy side effects. And it hasn't changed that much in our relative history. I mean, I remember the section in the book, you were talking about grapes and how grape seeds, wild grapes have seeds because they need to reproduce. And those seeds have a whole host of uh, really important protective chemicals. And now we don't eat grapes that have seeds in them. But I remember when I was a kid, when you went to the store, grapes had seeds. It was the same with me, Jennifer. As a child, you know, cultivated grapes had seeds. And uh, we just preferred not to consume them in any fashion. And so as we got used to more and more seedless fruits, it was just a matter of time before grapes became the same. Right. And now even those of us who are interested in alternative medicine will not even think about the fact that we'll go to the health food store and get grapeseed oil extract or grapeseed extract to, to try to help with different ailments and realize that that right. was in the grapes, <laughs> <laughs> you know, 20 years ago. Um, but this is what ha kind of happens when you start to explore this 
um, you know, reexamining of our current existence and, and reading your book, once you start thinking about grapes, it's like all of the threads start to pull. <laughs> all of, everything starts to come undone. And so I um, obviously, I, we can't summarize your whole book here. But I was wondering if we could talk about some delve into more of what your book covers, because it's, it seems as though basically, if I were to sum it up, everything that we used to do, that was part of the natural world that was part of our old life way, we now are terrified of, whether that's, um, you know, being in the sun, or drinking water, that comes from a natural source or, you know, being barefoot and feeling so then the list goes on and on. So I was wondering if you could maybe talk about, um, you know, your vision for the book and how you broke it up. Yeah, it was essentially trying to take instead of, you know, if we look at many health movements, they primarily focus on diet. And then, you know, we had something like the paleo movement come along where they linked diet and movement together as part of, you know, a, a broader idea of what health was focused on. And that was a great start. But humans need so much more than that. Uh, we need to consider our water and what it's in and what's been put in it. We need to consider our nature immersion. I mean, we are, in fact, our, our genes are still wild animals seeking immersion in nature. And we can't just depart from that and live in these concrete and steel jungles because it doesn't give us the complexity of the environment that we are adapted to. Um, we need community. We need hormesis, which is the gradual strengthening of the body by experiencing discomfort, no different than a runner or a weightlifter pushes themselves, you know, each week to be able to be stronger or run farther or faster through being uncomfortable for short periods of time. Uh, we can do this with all kinds of things, our adaptations to heat and to cold and so on. Um, and and just taking all of these facets of sort of human existence and breaking them down and identifying what is our biological norm, again, what's hardwired into our genome, what are we getting today that is not providing the fulfillment of that full nourishment that we need, considering nourishment is not just food, but also needing experiences and elemental exposure to that list of food groups, if you will, and then talking about how we can emulate that. How can we get it today when we do have so many broken aspects of human health? Right. And so that brings me to asking you about community, because that's one of the things I really, really struggle with living in an urban environment. So how, how can we get that today, that sense of community? Because we talked about this before we went on air, which is, you know, society and community are not the same thing. So um, what's the difference and, and how can we emulate that in the modern world? Well, it's, it's going to be absolutely uh, impossible, unfortunately, for most people to get anything that really accurately resembles the kind of community that we had in the past, communities that we existed in, to show how difficult this will be to have today. I mean, one of them was this place in commons that I described, and it's essentially that we inhabited a specific place and we were adapted to that place, but more importantly, that the land was held in common to the people. No one person owned it, no one person had 
certain rights over various resources. It was for everybody to use within the system of traditional ecological knowledge that they had. In other words, they weren't going to destroy that land um, and take it away from future generations. So there were some guiding principles for sure. But imagine living with a group of people where you all equally own the land. That's a really hard thing to experience today. Um, another one is the egalitarianism where people were equal, despite the fact that they may have had different roles within their culture, but all of them were valued, all of them were considered necessary, and that nobody had special status over anybody. We, we often hear about the elders and the chiefs and these kinds of things, and what we don't realize is these people with titles didn't have more material wealth, they simply had greater obligation to their people. And elders didn't, you know, take over consensus. They merely adjusted the consensus. It made sense to listen to somebody who had spent five or six decades living on this landscape and to hear the words that they say. But it didn't necessarily mean that those people got their way. Um, I think that we have a lot of myths around, you know, this idea that all in indigenous groups say in North America had a chief who was the who was a strict leader in the sense of how our city and political organizations are set up. I mean, think about equal wealth distribution. You couldn't tell based on the lodges who were the elders, who were the young, who were the 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 those that may have had um, some kind of leadership role because they all lived in the same kinds of shelters, they all had the same kinds of belongings. We're not talking about that social distance that we see today in the United States where the difference between the poorest people and the wealthiest people is this unimaginable difference in wealth and privilege and status. That wasn't the case. And so when we start really looking very carefully at how community existed in the past for us. Again, what are what our genes want to receive as an experience? It gets really hard for us to find this in almost any setting that is termed quote community in this day and age. Yeah, Arthur, you speak about this so beautifully, and I'm just wondering: Have you had the opportunity to live in any sort of uh, tribal communities where you've actually experienced this firsthand? You I know, know I certainly have not lived with any intact hunter-gatherer groups, and and you know there really are very few of them in existence in the world. I mean, there aren't any intact hunter-gatherer groups in North America, and that is and that is sometimes taken in a very derogatory fashion by some First Nations Indigenous people, but to a degree, all are acculturated, all are living with modern food and modern clothing and modern transportation, even though they may have many aspects of their life ways still intact, there aren't any intact full hunter-gatherers, which has meant that for me to find elders that I can learn from, and groups has been really difficult. I refer to them now as our print elders, the books, the old anthropological reports of first contact or 
contact and living amongst people before too much had happened to their life ways. Um, I am learning um, an Eastern Abenaki language, um, which in their language is Skajino Wadawawagan. That's the Passamaquoddy language. It's primarily of Eastern Maine. Um, there are, as of the last count, fewer than 50 fluent speakers left in the world. Um, I just consider indigenous language to be this very important thing to preserve because it harbors an entire way of looking and thinking about the world. And every time we lose a language, we lose, um, you know, what Wade Davis refers to as part of our ethnosphere. A bit of diverse human diversity is lost. And so I've just decided that I'm going to, uh, as best as I can, as a person of European descent, I'm going to take up learning this as the second language for all the values that it may be and teach what I know you know, to my daughter. So my learning of a Passamaquoddy language shouldn't be confused with that I spend a great deal of time with Passamaquoddy people who are hunter-gatherers because that's not the case. Um, I simply, those opportunities are extremely rare in the world today. Right. And, and I think it's so important that you say that because in a lot of ways, we're all trying to piece together what, how this could look if we took ancestral yes. life ways and put yes. it into the modern one. I know this is something that you're working to do in your own life. And and the language is a really interesting part of it. I really want to, I would almost love to have a whole other podcast about that. That's really cool. Um, but yeah, so I was, can you talk to me about what you're doing now? I, I'm really fascinated by this community you're building. It's called Wilder Waters, right? Yes, that's a community that me and my partner and uh, my daughter and another couple, John and Emily, who have been living here for a while are all forming. And we essentially know that there's something wrong with industrial living. Uh, again, not that it's all bad, but we also recognize it's not all good. And what we want to do is say, look, we, we can't detach from industrial living completely. It's not possible for us to do but we can detach from it to a degree and we can try to experience as close as we can to real human community in our daily living where we share tasks, where we recognize everybody has gifts that they can supply to the community, where we respect everyone's decisions, where we respect everyone's contributions. And that's what we're trying to accomplish here. Uh, we have a set of guiding principles that I've put on the web and you had mentioned you have read where we sort of outline what it is that we're trying to do in this community so that we can experience that bit of nutrition that most humans living in cities are simply not experiencing. Yeah. So can you walk me through some of that vision? Like what is, what is your average day in wild wilder waters look like well i i wouldn't say there is an average day and the problem is is that if you are trying to live truly by the circle of the seasons your days change all the time you know we have this idea of eating in season which is really just eating based on what the supermarket is providing at that moment but it's not eating the season of your landscape because the supermarket is just filled with foods that came from very distant areas it's a I mean, it's it's not even just a myth. It's just an outright lie, so to speak. But when you attempt to do this, and we don't do it entirely, we have store purchase foods in this house um, almost every day. But 
a, a wild diet that truly lives by the season does change constantly. Um, so, you know, this time of year, when we're out gathering our food, we're we're here in Western Maine. We're in the middle of the winter season. So there's a layer of snow blanketing the ground and plant foods are really limited. There are a few that we can access, um, but not many. And so most of our wild nutrition is coming in the form of animals. And a big one right now is ice fishing. So when we are um, all free and we organize to go out, much of the time we're spending out on our frozen water bodies right now, catching things like brook trout and lake trout, landlocked salmon and, and other species through the ice to bring back to the home for our wild nutrition. Um, we have days that we spend, you know, indoors organizing and thinking about events that we might like to hold and how we'll get the word out about wilder waters. Um, we share lots of meals. That's a big thing. Food sharing is is such a huge part of this vision because it was such a big part of hunter-gatherer lifeways, that sharing of the harvest, that sharing of the cooking and being together for the meals. So that's a huge thing that we do here. Uh, lots of outdoor time, lots of talking. <laughs> that sounds great. And and who's preparing all the food? Do you all cook together? Uh, it, it, yeah, it changes. Um, it, and, you know, here it also right now uh, with being, you know, really busy with certain work obligations and trying to uh, promote the book, A New Path, um, you know, you'll see others stepping up like Emily is and, uh, and Sarah are doing lots of cooking right now. And then when schedules change, I'll jump back into the fray. So it's not all just on one person. Uh, we, we rotate those responsibilities. Um, uh, you know, as much as we can. Yeah. And then there are children, too, as part of this community, right? Uh, they're they're a, a big part of it. Um, you know, just to in full disclosure, uh, Samara, who is um, my daughter, she's now four. And she has had the fortune of um, a nutrient dense diet. All the way through her development lots of outdoor time, lots of conscientious sun exposure. We're talking about somebody who has boundless energy. And it's hard for all of us and the adults to keep up with this creativity that she has. Um, she, you know, she's had cloth dolls and wooden toys uh, for most of her life, her screen time is extremely limited. Um, and, and so she's very creative. And it's, frankly, it's it's work to keep up with this and do it in a way where a child's sovereignty is respected, and they're not simply put in a playpen or just thrown in front of a screen, um, you know, to say, hey, I'm just going to let this computer screen be the babysitter for the next few hours. We don't do that here. And that means that the all the adults chip in and helping out with the child care, um, which is a really great thing. We want a very supportive uh, atmosphere for the mothers. They're not on their own. They are to be supported by all members of the community. Childcare is something that is shared. But at the same time, that's a stress that we experience because we didn't grow up as young people and teenagers caring for children. So we're learning so much about how to interact with children and how to make sure that their needs are met and our needs are met uh, during the day. Like, you know, if there are things that we need to accomplish, we we have to 
be free to do that and other members have to step in and assist. And it is, um, it's something that we're working through, again, because our, our current society just puts children in daycares and in public school and the other siblings aren't necessarily part of the child rearing process. So we don't have that, that long experience to draw on by the time we're adults. Yeah. And to be honest, I mean, you probably don't even have the numbers that you need to really support you right now in terms of a community. Like, you know, in the past, people had dozens of, of people surrounding them and aunties and, and uh, cousins. And, you know, I, I can imagine it's interesting hearing you talk about this because in such an urban environment, I have very much, we've raised our children very much that way too, which is a lot of nutrient-dense food, a lot of outdoor time, but we don't have family members in a community around us either. And, and it's a constant struggle, you know, and I, you see why people in the modern world, why they are so quick to stick an iPhone in front of a kid, because they don't have those hands actually helping them. Um, and so I'm just, I'm curious to see what, what's your vision for, do you imagine this community growing beyond what you have right now? Like, what would be your dream five well, years it's down the certainly road? It's, yeah, it is growing. And we have people that we are interviewing and talking with and they come stay with us for a period of time. And, and we are growing, but we're not going to grow as fast as many might like us to. Um, we also know that low population density was a trait of hunter-gatherer communities, that having a lot of land to get your privacy on was important. You know, if there was a day with some tension and a little bit of stress to be able to find places to be alone. Um, and so this right now, we own about 150 acres, and we're going to have one more family come. And so that will be three full families, ultimately, with children. And not until we buy more land are we going to be having more communities in, in all like, or excuse me, more community members in all likelihood. We want to make sure that we have a lot of land for the community to exist so that we can experience as much self-sufficiency as possible. Um, you know, you'll see agricultural communities a lot and they may only have five or 10 acres and they could have 25 people living on it and it's just too crowded. And every available square inch of that space is either um, domiciles or agricultural fields. And we're really trying to live in a very different way where we're interacting with the natural community to the best of our ability as one of the wild members. And, and that requires a lot of space. And so, yes, we are growing, um, but we're growing slowly based on how we acquire more land. Right. Because when you say you're actually foraging off the landscape, you have a water source there, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, we... we drink from this beautiful, cold, clean stream that passes right by our home. It would be considered dangerous water, um, you know, to most people, but I've drank from it for eight years without issue, summer, winter, spring, fall, you know, through the entire year. And keeping that watershed clean is one of the things that is really important to us. Yeah, well, that's another mind-blowing thing about your book that we don't really have a ton of time to delve into. But this idea that most people drank what you describe as raw water. I mean, not even close to what people in urban environments drink now. And that's that's what we drank for most of human history. And what impact does that have on our microbiomes now in the modern world that we're drinking? And, and it's something our community considers to be really special that we have surface water that 
is so pure and and uh, so safe to drink. Like I said, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people drink from this water source every, you know, almost every year, and no one has any issues. And it's not that I'm saying that things like Giardia and waterborne illnesses are fake, because they're not. I just think that their frequency is exaggerated to the point that now we're scared of all wild water sources. In some cases now, there's even movements against spring water that's coming from deep underground. It's just the this intrinsic taboo, as my friend Daniel refers to it, that society has to have a taboo against the wild to keep people within the walls of the city. Yeah. Well, because when you start to realize what life could be like. I mean, I'm very much romanticizing your life now, Arthur. So <laughs> can you tell me anything? Yeah, I mean, and can to you be, be sure, realistic about some of the any challenges you might want to just Sure. Yeah. Talk uh, about. Uh, and I think that's a really good place to jump into, Jennifer, because you know, while while we might be able to, you know, we we have great foraging sites and we have great hunting sites for white-tailed deer and it all sounds so wonderful, but the hardest thing for us is really the fact that we have a group of people who are all being thrown together. It kind of like we're just being dropped into the fire, if you will. We've come from different backgrounds. We have different belief systems. We have different skill sets, uh, a different ability to observe what's on our landscape. And it's really tough for us uh, to live together. It requires the right kind of people who are willing to say, we all recognize this is hard. We all recognize we're not perfect at it, but we're, we have almost a sense of uh, stubbornness that we're just going to keep talking until we work through it. And not everybody can do that because we need generations to get on the same page. And everybody living here is in it for the long haul, but we haven't lived together for generations. So, I mean, there are all kinds of issues that we run into around social interaction, around ego issues, um, even even broken learning systems. Uh, I, there's many of these that I could go into that are real obstacles for us functioning as a real fluid community. Right. And, and we don't have quite enough time to delve into them, but it's interesting to know that, you know, you're it sounds like you're learning as you're going along as well yes absolutely yeah um, i've lived in a communal setting before but it was essentially just for summer certainly i learned some things during that that uh period of time but what we're trying to do is completely different because we're trying to form a community that is immersed within the greater natural community around our home it's more complicated to do this um and we're also we lack a kind of hierarchical structure. Yes, um, in this particular case, I've lived here the longest. And so that gives me some information about the land here that others are gaining. Um, but that doesn't mean that it just all goes the way I want it. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we, we have all kinds to learn. And what it requires, again, are people who really have an ability to drop their ego defenses that's a really important one um and not bring a lot of baggage from the outside world i mean there are visitors who have come who can only view the world in the sense of privilege and power uh they're highly immersed in you know sort of social justice and they bring that worldview here 
where everything that gets done can only be seen through that filter and it creates a tremendous amount of friction um these are all the all the struggles that we run into while we try to get on the same page right well maybe a litmus test should be that they have to have read a new path before they come in. <laughs> yeah that might not be a bad idea <laughs> um and, and you know just to wrap up with a couple big picture questions do you think that something like this, obviously not the foraging aspect, but this deep sense of community or um, just the shift of thinking, do you think that's possible in a place like Los Angeles or in an urban setting? Um, I, I do think it's possible to get a lot closer to our historical norms, um, but it, 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 what it might need is for people to stop waiting for all of society to change because that's a really that's a really hard thing. Society changes in some ways extremely slowly. Technologically, it changes very rapidly, but socially, um, it, it changes a lot more slowly. And it needs people to set up their own hubs, to form their communities within it and let those ideas permeate outward. So I, I think we can always do a much better job than we're doing now. I mean, because remember, what we experience for community deeply impacts our outlook on life, the depression and anxiety we experience. I mean, these are all tied very closely with research supporting this. And so it's not just, oh, it would be good if, it's really a necessity that we try to forge these real human connections that involve sharing and equality and and a connection a cohesion if you will based on a similarity of beliefs and techniques and skills and things of that nature yeah so true and so and what about from the rural side do you, i know the world is rapidly urbanizing but do you envision a future where there are more communities like the ones you're like the one you're trying to create i do um i do we just simply need to remember how these things have been structured in the past and do our best to format them in that same way i mean we people literally need to have a place that they can call home that is their home that no one can ever take away from them and once they develop that that connection, that kinship to the land and develop the skills to live on that land in a way that's that's truly sustainable, a true eco-conscientious living, they need to have that built in these uh, individual communities that can come together as a greater tribe uh, for various events. But, you know, this is a pattern that was observed with Native Americans where there would be bands of people 30 to 50 strong who shared a similar language and would come together for events so that they could meet with other people. They didn't have to feel isolated just amongst their own. And there are, there's a group um, that are doing this really great thing where they're setting up nodes. And this is uh, Andrew Badnock and some others uh, who have some of this happening in Alaska right now, where what they're calling them nodes, and you could just call them locations for the community if you wanted, where you will be free to move nomadically amongst those different nodes. And that's something that we ultimately need because fission and fusion, as it was called, as people with similar language and similar beliefs, similar skills, similar land-based knowledge could move amongst these different individual groups um, it, it to 
you know, have this dynamic complex, if you will, of human interactions, but you were still within the greater tribe of your people. And that's the kind of thing that we need to establish here. We need other people building similar kinds of communities near us so that we can spend time amongst all of these people and not and not feel isolated amongst our own community, which is really easy to have happen now because you you end up you know, the knowledge that we're talking about, Jennifer, can be very isolating and it can generate grief for people because they realize that their longtime friends, their high school friends, their family are simply on a different path than them. And so as we develop more of these communities, it will become easier and easier for people to adopt this way of living. Yeah, I, I love that vision. Um, I'm such a fan of your book. Where can people buy a new path? I mean, the place that benefits us, those that have written it and and those that benefit from the sales the most um, is going to my website, ArthurHaines.com. And if you click on work with me, you'll see a link that says books. And there I get the highest proportion you know, of the proceeds. And we're using that to buy more land. And as we get more land, we have more families that come live here. Um, and so, you know, it's available on Amazon. Um, where people can write reviews and read reviews that have been done. But again, the greatest benefit is through my website at ArthurHaines.com. Yeah, it, just hearing the word Amazon after speaking to you just sounds like, <laughs> I don't know, it's like yeah, sacrilegious. It's if it's not on Amazon, it doesn't exist. It's one of those things like if you don't post a picture of it on Facebook, it never happened. It's like it's the weird, bizarre world that we live in now. Um and and the Amazon is necessary to for some people to say, oh, OK, it's a real thing. Maybe I'll consider buying it. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll do another show if you if you are game to coming back talking about how you're straddling the virtual and the and the ancestral worlds. Yeah, uh, do it with most of your time immersed in nature and you'll find your sanity is preserved a lot greater. I mean, uh there, there's a real buffering capacity to spending time in natural places. And it's one of my strategies for just keeping some semblance of health through all this. Because, you know, this neo-Aboriginal path where we want to create these new indigenous people that are connected to the land and have forward-thinking ability, it, it's, it's much harder than just living the standard American life way because you need to know how to interface with industry, but you also need to learn how to interface with nature and the land that you live on. So it actually requires a greater degree of skill because we still have to walk in both worlds for a time. Right. And speaking of being immersed in the natural world, can people come visit you? Are you open to guests at Wilder Waters? We are. I mean, we're primarily open to guests that might one day live here because we get a lot of requests and, and our time is busy. Uh, we you know, we have some work for employment that buys land and pays property taxes, those things that we haven't yet figured out how we're going to get around. Um, but also we're out and about on the landscape. I mean, we're ice fishing. We're, we gather chaga, a medicinal mushroom this time of year. And so we're, we need to make sure that all of our time is not used up interacting with people because we want to make sure we're interacting with the natural world and other than human persons 
as much as we can. And if they want to follow you virtually, you do have a wonderful Instagram account. Yeah, that's Wilder Waters um, that uh, my wife, Sarah, um, does a lot of work on. And John and Emily here also help her. And she posts some of the things from our daily lives when we're out gathering wild food and the things that we're showing the next generation of how to live in a way that they can get off the industrial food system. Arthur Haynes, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Your new book is A New Path to Transcend the Great Forgetting Through Incorporating Ancestral Practices into Contemporary Living. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak with you today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio so you don't miss the next one. And please leave us a rating and review. If you want to talk more about this episode or have an idea for a future show, head over to my Instagram page. That's at Jennifer Grayson one. As with every episode, the resources and links for this show are available at jennifergrayson.com, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, which comes out once a month. Our theme music is by composer Paul Damian Hogan. That's it for me, and I'll see you next Monday with a new episode.